This is Adam. Adam is an ordinary guy on an extraordinary mission. Adam has been challenged to face down his fears, overcome his doubts, and set aside his worries. Adam is on a mission from God. You see, Adam has been assigned the task of loving his neighbor. You may be asking, what does loving my neighbor look like? What does it require of me and for how long? Today, we will not only identify the fears and fences that hold us back from being a good neighbor, but we'll also learn to overcome them. Well, I want to welcome you here today, whether you're tuning in from the chapel, online, Facebook Live, or at the West Campus this morning, we are so glad that you have decided to join us. We are thrilled uh, that you're here with us. You're here bright and early. How many of you are glad you got an extra hour sleep this morning? All right, awesome. Hey, when your kids are like three years old, they aren't really affected by time change weekend, okay? So my kids were up at like 4.30 this morning, and I was up anyways praying, and so, uh, um, no, I was sleeping at that point. <laughs> hey, I want to uh, start out by, by telling you something that happened to me years ago. When I was a freshman in high school, I played on our basketball team. And, and on one particular evening, there was this really big game. It was with a rival team and the gym was packed out. It was a home game. So it was at our school. And I mean, the energy was just contagious in the place. Well, towards the end of the first half, our point guard got into foul trouble. And so our coach signaled to me to go and take his place. And I got to tell you, as soon as he told me to play point guard, I immediately got nervous. I was scared because I had never played this position before. And I knew that I wasn't the best ball handler. I couldn't dribble all that well. I could shoot. But dribbling just wasn't my thing. And, and so I remember thinking to myself, well, there's not that much time left in the half. How bad could I really, how bad could I really mess things up, right? Now, if you're a point guard, you know that one of the best things you can do before the ball is actually inbounded to you is to look at the clock to assess how much time is actually remaining in the half, all right? Now, not only did I not do that, but as soon as my teammate passed me the ball, all right, there was this chant coming from the student section from the visiting team, and it went like this, five, four, three, two, one. And so I saw this as the perfect opportunity to be the hero of my team and to score some last second points. And again, I didn't really know how much time was left on the clock. And so before I could even cross the three-point line on the opposite end of the court, I picked up my dribble. I took the ball with one hand and launched it towards our basket. I got close. It, it was within 30 feet, all right? But it just went right out of bounds. And to my surprise, my coach then yelled at me, what in the world were you thinking? What, what's going on? Now, that was not the reaction that I was anticipating, okay? I mean, I was expecting to save the day here. And, I thought, and so I said back to him, well, what do you mean? What, what did I just do? I mean, there was only five seconds left in, in the clock. And he just pointed up at the clock. And, and as I looked up at the clock, I realized in that moment how stupid I was. There wasn't five seconds left in the half. There was, there was three minutes left. <laughs> I had been deceived into shooting a last second shot because of some pranksters from the visiting team and I couldn't believe how stupid I looked and my counselor says it's really therapeutic for me to talk about and uh, <laughs> I'm just now to a point where I can talk about it, all right? And 
And there's something about fear, though, that distorts reality a little bit. I mean, fear really caused me to, to not do what I should have done in that moment, which was to assess the situation. And instead, I got nervous, and, and my anxiety took over. And all of a sudden, I, I was misled a little bit because of this feeling of anxiety, fear, and, and worry, right? The psychologists have determined that we all have fears, obviously, but they originate in three different places. Sometimes fears are instinctive. Sometimes fears that we have are observed in others. And in other times, the fears that we may experience have been taught to us, right? And so regardless of, of where your fear may originate, I'm sure that we could all point to a specific moment in our life and time when we look back and realize that, that we, were, we were just overtaken by what we were afraid of. We asked ourselves the what ifs and what if this happened and could it be that, and it misled us. What we were afraid of didn't end up happening, right? And so over the past few weeks, we've been in this series called Won't You Be My Neighbor? And we've been looking at the most famous story Jesus ever told called the story of the Good Samaritan. Now, this story was told because this religious guy asked Jesus what it really looked like for us to love our neighbors as ourselves. And so from uh, uh, each week, we've been looking at this story from a different perspective and identifying what it really looks like for us to love the people in our life, even if they're difficult for us to love. And one thing that's really interesting about this story that, that we're going to see today is that Jesus basically says in one way or another that we can, we can be fearful, we can love people, but those two can't coexist. You can't experience fear and love at the same time. And so after Jesus tells this story, it, he asked the uh, Jewish religious guy who wanted to know what does it really look like for me to love my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? And Jesus says, okay, in this story that I just told, who was, who was the man that uh, got beaten and left for dead on the side of the road? Who was his neighbor? It wasn't the Levite. It wasn't this religious leader, this Jewish priest. Here's what, here's what the Jewish um, expert in the law replied by saying, he told Jesus, well, it was the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Now, this is really significant. We can't just overlook his response here, right? Because this was Jesus' way of this guy self-identifying that you can't fear and love at the exact same time. Well, how do we get that from what this guy responds with? Well, this guy was Jewish, okay? And the story is called the Good Samaritan. Back then, Good and Samaritan did not go together. Jews and Samaritans were racist towards one another. And so notice that this guy didn't say, well, it, it was the Samaritan. No, his pride was so great that he couldn't even bring himself to acknowledge that the Samaritan was the hero of the story. He just said, the one. <laughs> What did he do? Well, he showed mercy on him. Now, that word in the Greek is also interchangeable for the word compassion. And compassion means to, uh, to, to look beyond ourselves, to experience this, this deep inner emotion that leads us towards action. You see, compassion is the way that we combat fear because it causes us to take the focus off ourselves and onto someone else who has a prevalent need around us. And so Jesus is saying, hey, buddy, look, if, if you really want to do this well, you, you can't fear and love at the same time. And so this guy walked away learning that love is greater than my need to be right. Love is greater than my beliefs. No, love, love exceeds all of those things. 
So what we're going to do today is we are going to look at uh, how fear tends to take over our life by bouncing out of the story of the Good Samaritan into another story earlier on in the Bible. Now, the people who heard this story were very familiar with the story that we're going to look at today. And if, we're, uh, if we were to take an honest assessment of our life, we would realize that our fear tends to talk to us in one way, shape, or, or form. Military experts... Uh, say that, you know, one of the best ways that that you can uh, be successful in in an attack in a certain battle is to not only know your enemy, but to know their strategies and to uh, know who they are inside and out. And so what we're going to do today is identify what are those strategies that fear has when playing against us when we're called to love people. What does fear say? So if you have your Bibles or Bible app, I want you to go ahead and turn to the book of Numbers. If you don't own a Bible, there should be a Bible near you. Go ahead and pick that up. Uh, Numbers can be found towards the beginning uh, of Scripture. It goes like this, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, okay? And we're going to be in chapter 13 uh, for most of today. Now, as you're turning there, let me just set the scene up for you. Uh, At one point in time, God uh, identified a a group of people called the Jews or the Israelites, the Jewish people or God's people, all referring to the same people group, okay? He he identified them to to be God's witnesses to the world around them. Now, the Jews weren't better than other people. They weren't better than other nationalities. They were just the people that God said, okay, represent my name to all people uh, in the world around you. And so at one point in time, we know that the Jews were in slavery over in Egypt. They didn't really like slavery too much, so they asked that God would deliver them. God answered their prayer by sending this hot-tempered, convicted murderer by the name of Moses to lead them out of slavery. If you think God can't use you, look at Moses. There's proof that he can use anyone. And if Moses doesn't do it for you, just look at me, okay? It's true. And so Moses leads the Israelites out of slavery, and, he tell, and God tells him, hey, I'm going to lead you to the promised land. Now, the promised land was a land that God had promised to them. That's deep. I know, all right? But this was the land of Canaan where, where the Jewish people were to establish this nation that God was calling them uh, to do, all right? And so they're in the wilderness, they're in the uh, desert, and life is hard. They're camping, they don't know where they're going, and God is sending mixed signals. And I mean, life is just really tough for them, right? And tough for us, struggle for us is when our phone dies and we can't find a charger for five minutes. You know what I'm saying? Well, the Jews ended up camping out in the wilderness for 40 years, never making it to the promised land. And so early on in that 40-year stretch, at the very beginning, like year one or two, they get pretty close to the promised land, and God tells Moses, hey, identify 12 spies among the Jewish community to go actually into the land of Canaan, the promised land, and assess the situation so that so that you know what you're getting yourself into. You can conquer the land of Canaan and you can establish your nation. And so the uh, 40, uh, 12 spies go back. They spend 40 days in the land of Canaan. They come back and they report to Moses what they saw and experienced. And that's where we pick up uh, today. Here, look at verse 27, number 13. They gave Moses this account. We went into the land to which you sent us, And it does flow with milk and honey. It's great. Here is its fruit. But the people who live there are powerful, and the cities are fortified and very large. We even saw descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites live in the Negev, the Hittites, Jebusites, and Amorites live in the hill country, and the Canaanites live near the sea and along the Jordan. What's happening here? All right, so these 12 spies come back and report exactly what they saw. Now, 10 of the 12 were absolutely terrified. They were overwhelmed by the power and strength of the people. And many of their neighborhoods were gated communities with a heavy police force. And so they told Moses, hey, 
it's too much of a risk. I mean, the, we, can't, we can't fight them. In verse 28, the 10 spies said that some of the citizens were descendants of, of Anak. Okay, now the, these were men in the ancient world known to be giants. These men were masculine beasts. They had hairy chests. They had large biceps and chiseled abs. If you can't picture them, just look at me, all right? Why do you laugh? And so they're overwhelmed by the power and the strength of these guys. And so it became very clear that their fear was talking in this moment. Moses, it's probably best that we don't do it. And that's why the first thing that we can identify that our fear says when we're scared goes like this. Don't risk anything for anyone. Right? Don't risk anything for anyone. The uncertainty of how the Israelite army would size up against the people of Canaan was too risky for those 10 spies. Now, they were entitled to their opinion. Right? They, they, they had their perspective. They had their right to stay with that. But God ultimately held Moses accountable to what he did with that information and how responsible he was because after hearing this report, Moses was very indecisive. He didn't know which direction to take. And, and like all leaders, though, Moses had more information and knew what was at stake more than the people that he was leading in this community. Take a look at what God had previously told Moses before even sending out the spies to go into the land. The Lord said to Moses, send some men to explore the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the Israelites. God already promised Moses victory here. He, he basically said, hey, Moses, whatever the spies come back and report, don't worry about what they say. Don't worry about their experience because you know what? The battle's yours. I am going to be with you, and I am greater. I am bigger than whatever it is that you are going to face once you get beyond this mountain. One thing I'm learning uh, as a leader is that when you come across certain decisions you need to make in life and maybe here at church, you've got to ask yourself two questions. The first question that's most important goes like this. What does God want me to do? All right, what does God want me to do? And the second question goes like this, especially in church, how will people react? Now, a mentor of mine who was my pastor growing up has told me time and time again throughout this past year, he said it like this, Patrick, it's not that, it's not that the second question isn't important. He said, but death always comes to a church whenever the fear of people's reaction is more important than the fear of God and what he actually wants you to do. And I'm learning more and more. It's easy to talk about, it's easy to say, it's easy to teach, but it's another to actually live in this reality of courage. You see, fear is when our problems seem too big because our view of God is way too small. As a result of his decision to play it safe rather than trust what, what God had said, the Lord punished this generation of Israelites, including Moses, by forbidding them to even entering into the land of Canaan, the promised land. Now, here's the thing. Sometimes the cost of not taking a risk is greater than the risk itself. And if we're all being honest with ourselves, we have a list of reasons of why we should be afraid, worried, and anxious about the future. The uncertainty of tomorrow is just uncomfortable if we think about it too long, right? I mean, we think to ourselves, well, what if, what if the chemo doesn't work? Or what if my depression never leaves me? What if she goes to college and she surrounds herself with friends that we don't agree with? It's going to lead her the wrong direction. What if I have to sit at the table with him this Thanksgiving? How am I going to have a conversation with him? And, and these thoughts just flood our mind over and over again. You see, the fear that those 10 spies came back with after entering the land of Canaan literally permeated the entire community of the Israelites. It was contagious, and so everyone just wanted to get back to Egypt where they could be enslaved again because at least that was predictable. At least they knew what they were getting themselves into. 
You see, fear crushes our dreams. Fear limits our vision. And the reality is, fearing our culture, fearing our culture actually prevents us from loving our culture. Over the past 20 centuries, the church has responded to the culture in usually one of three ways. Sometimes the church has responded by fighting with the culture. At times, the church has responded by withdrawing and isolating from the culture. And then there have been moments where the church has responded by engaging with the culture and, and loving the culture. And let me just be very clear that Jesus never told us to just separate ourselves from darkness, to, to not be you know, in the neighborhood, in our city, and, and to, to isolate from the world around us and, and to live really weird lives, to never have fun again. No, that's not what Jesus said. No, he, he told us to be in the world, but not of the world. He told us to be a light in the midst of darkness because we have nothing to be afraid. And yet, if we isolate ourselves to a point where the only people that we know are people that think like us, look like us, and vote like us, and believe just like us, like us, then we really have alienated the people that need the love of Christ the most. I love how many of you are doing this so well last week, and I challenged you to begin uh, to, to see Halloween as an opportunity to engage with people in your neighborhood, and it's the moment when your neighborhood comes to you, you don't necessarily need to go to them. And, and many of you uh, let me know this past week on uh, email, Facebook, and such about what you did and how this worked out for you, and surprisingly, they were some really good emails, all right? Here's one email about uh, a couple sent me. They're, they're new to Crossroads, and, and here's, what, here's what she wrote. She said, we just moved to Evansville two months ago, and we've really been struggling with meeting new people. Last week, you mentioned using Halloween to meet your neighbors and threw out some examples. And so after church, we went straight to Sam's Club, got a fire pit, and way too many graham crackers, marshmallows, and chocolate bars, and, and decided, decided to give it a go, she said. By the end of the night, there was a group of people from all over the streets standing around the fire for an hour or two, getting to really know each other. And I got to tell you, we, we never would have thought to try this, and, and we would have just continued to exist on our street rather than get to know the people around us, because that's what was easy. That's the easy road. That's the safe route. This is what it looks like to love where you are. Combating the paralysis of fear happens when we take the courage to act in spite of what we may be afraid of, in spite of the risk that's before us. One of the last things that Jesus told his followers before going back up to heaven, he gathered them in a room and he said this in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Now understand that Jesus is basically saying, hey, Jerusalem is first priority. That, that's most important because Jerusalem is where you live. That's the equivalent of Jesus telling us today, you're my witness in your neighborhood. You're my witness in your city, in your community. Now that word witness is really interesting because in the original Greek word, it's actually the same root word where we get the word martyr. And martyr simply means to witness on behalf of. And so Jesus is saying, hey, look, if, if you're going to take this whole witness thing seriously, it, it's going to cost you. You can't be stopped by fear if you really want to be my witness where you live. And so Jesus says, what, what, what are you going to do? About a year and a half ago, we began a brand new journey as a church uh, embarking on this five-year vision. And uh, when we first communicated this vision, I said that we began this whole journey with this one, question, with this one statement that we want to do something and we want to dream and plan something so big and so great that if it actually happens, only God can get credit for it. And and that's certainly been the case. And we said by 2021, we want to be one church in, in five different locations throughout the tri-state area. And so as of today, we are in two different locations. We're in Newburgh and on the west side. And, 
And right now we are actively pursuing what our third location is going to look like, where it's going to be, and we are really excited about it. Now, if you've been with us, you know that along the way there has been hurt, there's been miscommunication, there have been rumors, there's been pain, there's been loss, and it hadn't been easy, has it? There's been a lot of risk to it. But i got to tell you, having sat through our elders meeting about two weeks ago, in spite of all the risk, in spite of everything that we've been through, we have never been more confident that our best days are before us as a church and that this is the vision that God has us on and, and we are going to follow this vision. We are going to follow this vision no, no matter the cost because this is what God has for us. Why, why are we doing this? Well, because the glory of Jesus is at stake and people in our community need to be told that, that God doesn't hate them, that there is a second chance possible and their past doesn't have to define them. So that's why we have been saying our vision, where we're headed as a church, goes like this. We exist to connect everyone everywhere by multiplying, to Jesus, by multiplying leaders, campuses, and churches. And you know what? There are a million reasons why this may not work. There are a million reasons why this may fail, but there are two really good reasons why we have to do this. Jesus and the people around us. It's worth the risk. Here's another statement that uh, our fear says. It goes like this. Every assumption is totally legitimate. Every assumption is totally legitimate. We see that playing out with the Israelites I mean, there's something uh, about fear that creates this false narrative in our minds. We come up with believable backstories, but the more we dwell on them, the more authentic that they seem. You know what I'm talking about? And that was certainly true for the 10 spies. They, they built up this, you know, kind of illusion of, of who these people were, but it was, nothing that, it was nothing more than their fear talking. Now, two of the 12 spies actually had faith, and they believed, hey, God wants us to take this land. Let's do it. Let, let's go after One of those spies was a guy by the name of Caleb. I want you to check out the exchange that Caleb has and contrast it with, the, with what takes place between him and the other spies right in front of Moses and the entire Jewish community. Numbers 13, verse 30. Then Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said, hey, look, we should go up and take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it. But the men who had gone up with him said, we can't attack those people. They are stronger than we are. Have you seen how much they bench pressed? And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land that they had explored. They said, the land we explored devours those living it. All the people that we saw there are of great size. We saw the Nephilim there, the descendants of Anak and the people from Nephilim. I don't know how to say that word. Nephilim, you, know, you try saying it, okay? We seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we looked the same to them. And so they've built up this image of, here's, a, here's how we compare to them. I mean, our, our size is nothing. You see, their timidity was nothing but irrational. It really made no sense whatsoever, but in the moment, it seemed to be believable. And you know what? Sometimes our fears don't have to be realistic for us to believe them. This past week was a really big moment in, the, in our home, in the life of our family. It was a significant milestone. My golden retriever puppy, Ryder, turned one year old. One year old. One, he's 12 months old, all right? And uh, um, it was a big moment for us. And I haven't talked about Ryder in a little while. And so if you're sick of me talking about it, just deal with it, okay? <clears throat> well, I have been training him for this past year, and the next kind of stage of training that I'm going to do with writers, I'm going to teach him how to hunt. And so I've been learning about this, reading magazines and books, and talking with different people who have done this. And, and one of the very first things that, that hunting experts uh, warn you of is, is to prevent your dog from becoming gun shy. 
Because if you introduce your dog to the sound of a gunshot, a shotgun, too early or too soon, it can create this fear in him, and it, you, can never over, you can never correct it. He will always be afraid of it. And so if you happen to develop a gun-shy dog, which is actually where we get that phrase from, the dog may run off, he may act in an irrational way, although the fear itself is not rational. It's not like you're going to hurt him in any way. But you see, when he hears that gunshot for the very first time, and it's too soon, it's not the right moment for him to hear it, you don't do it in the right way, it creates these neurological pathways in his mind that can never be unlearned. And so expert trainers say it is far easier, and it's you know, less costly to actually appropriately teach a dog how to hunt than to introduce him to the sound of a gunshot too soon. And so when a dog is afraid, he, he, he runs away. He, it's not rational, but it doesn't matter. And so Caleb says in this moment, hey, we, we can do this. And yet people respond by saying, we're, we're, nothing, we're nothing but grasshoppers. We can't do it. Are you kidding me? Look at verse 9. He, he tries convincing them over and over again. He says, well, do not be afraid of the people of the land because we will devour them. Their protection is gone, but the Lord is with us. Don't be afraid of them. But the whole assembly talked about stoning them. You see, when your body senses a threat, your natural reaction is, is to go into defense mode. You, you respond in anger. You defend yourself. A dog that's gun-shy responds in this way by running away. Well, these people responded by wanting to stone Caleb and, and Joshua. Why? They feared that Moses was actually going to listen to them and take their advice. One of Jesus' closest friends, a guy by the name of John, he said it like this in the book of 1 John. He said, there's no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. And so right here, John is reminding some Christians around 70 AD, hey, regardless of how much you may be opposed, persecuted, ridiculed, how much you, you may be fired from your job because of your faith, don't give up, don't be afraid, because you know what? The one thing in life that you should be afraid of most, God's, God's taking care of that. What's that one fear? How you stand before a holy, pure, righteous, sovereign God. And John says, look, Jesus took care of that. He, he absorbed the blame for you. And it's as if John says, hey, let's look back and see this contrast and, and this change, this transformation that happened because of what God has, has done through Jesus. You used to be afraid of, of acceptance, but the cross took care of that. You used to be afraid of your worst moment being found out, but the cross took care of that. You used to fear death, but the cross took care of that. Why? Because you have put your hope and your faith in Jesus Christ, the one who defeated death in your, in your place. There is no reason to fear. It's merely an illusion if you, are following, if you are following Jesus. And you see, while fear makes us go on the defensive, the cross tells us that love is actually about going on the offensive. And so let me ask you something. Do your neighbors, do the people around you, do they know you more by what you're for or by what you're against? Do they know you more by what you're for or what you're against? One of the most common fears that many of us have when it comes to interacting with people that are different than us is, well, what if I'm asked a question about my faith? What if I'm asked something that I don't know the answer to? Let me just eliminate this mystery right here by telling you that you will be asked questions you don't know how to respond to. But who's putting that, who's putting that pressure to be perfect upon you? Well, where's that coming from? It's not coming from your neighbors. It's not coming from God. He, know, he knows you're not perfect. It's coming from you. 
And you see, my experience has been that people would much rather us be authentic and genuine than have our stuff together, have everything pulled together. At the end of the day, we don't. And those are just greater moments and opportunities for us to point to the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. Let's finish up with our story here. And check out what we read next in in chapter 14, verse 10. It says this, Then the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the Israelites. God's having a meeting. and come to Jesus' meeting with them. The Lord said to Moses, How long will these people treat me with contempt? How long will they refuse to believe in me? In spite of all the signs that I have performed among them, I will strike them down with a plague and destroy them, but I will make you into a nation greater and stronger than they. Now, God rescued his people from slavery only for them to be enslaved to fear. You see, the Jews had obviously forgotten who God was. The battle before them appeared to be greater than the God who is for them and actually inside of them. You see, sometimes doubt is a form of fear because belief, it causes us to give up control. And maybe it's just me, and maybe I'm different, but I see myself in the story of the Israelites because one minute I can experience God's goodness, I can see him move, I can see him interact, I experience his blessing in my life, and then the very next minute I question him. I'm skeptical, I, I doubt. That's fear talking. Because the last thing fear says goes like this. God didn't really mean what he said. God didn't really mean what he said. Now, if, he only, if only the Israelites would have remembered that God had promised them, then they would have connected the dots and realized that, that God was greater than the people that they feared. There was nothing to be afraid of. And so let's get real with all this. All right, real can be hard. Do you know that? All of us right now listening to me, we all have fears, anxieties, worries, concerns. We're afraid of what tomorrow can hold. I want you to know that you know, one of the biggest fears I've always had my entire life is, is the fear of failure and the fear of disappointment. It's like it's, it's always followed me no matter how old I've gotten. From an early age, I remembered one of the biggest desires I had was to grow up to be just like my dad and to be a doctor. And so my oldest sister, Kara, uh, she ended up becoming a doctor, going through medical school, she and her husband. And, and so I saw them from a firsthand perspective of how much work it took and how much they had to study and how much they had to know. And medical school isn't easy, contrary to what I thought. <laughs> and uh, as impressed as I was with scoring like a 14 on the ACT, <laughs> why do you laugh? I thought it was good. <laughs> I knew that, you know what, it, it probably isn't my thing. And and so precisely at that moment in time, I, I was diagnosed with some learning disabilities, and it's as if all the lies and labels that I had believed in the past were becoming reality. What I feared most was becoming true, and it said I wasn't good enough, I don't measure up. You ever felt like that? Let me fast forward to you to about two years ago. I'm in a several-month interview process with our elders here about becoming the next lead pastor, and i got to tell you, it the whole time I kept just expecting and anticipating to say, for one of the guys to call me and say, you know what, it's just not for you, you know, and and I feared rejection, I feared, again, failure, I feared disappointment there. Well, about uh, nearly two years ago, I'll never forget, I was driving down the Lloyd Expressway on a Friday night, and I got a call from Paul Special, one of our chairman of the elders at the time, and he extended the offer to me to become our church's next lead pastor, and and I got to tell you, as soon as I hit end on my phone, this fear and anxiety and worry came over me because I thought, who am I to do this? I mean, 
Did you mean to call me? I mean, really? I mean, what if I mess up? What if I screw up? I mean, there's so much at stake here. And I got to tell you, over 18 months since I've stepped into this role, some of my worst fears have actually, have actually been realized. Some of it's come true. I've seen failure. I've seen disappointment happen. Someone once said that leadership is about disappointing people at a rate that, that they can stand, and that has certainly been the case. And so all along this journey, my f- fear in this role specifically has called me, caused me to be insecure at different moments in time. I've lost sleep. I've been anxious, and I've just felt this weight and this pressure. Like, God, who, are, are you sure? I mean, this, this is for me, and my fear only becomes real when... You know, I start to take things rather personal when things don't go the way that I think it should go, when rumors circulate and people draw conclusions that aren't rational, that just aren't true. When people leave, I take that really personal, and then I obsess over numbers, I obsess over attendance and giving, and all of a sudden, it becomes a part of my identity, it becomes part of who I am, and and I got to tell you, as soon as I step out to preach here every single weekend, there's this part of me that is just scared to death. Just last weekend after the service, I'm in a fetal position in my office, like, God, can I really, can I do this? And then I come out here, and some of you guys are just falling asleep. (laughs) For once, I just want to look at you the way that some of you look at me. (laughs) Get off your dang phones, you know? It's... I don't tell you that to have a pity party whatsoever because you know what? This is what I signed up for. If you carry the ball, you're going to get tackled. As hard as these past 18 months have been, none of it has caught me by surprise. When you're on the front lines, you you can count on getting tackled. So this is far from being a pity party. The reason why I tell you this is because you know what my fear is? You know what I've learned? My fear, my fear has led me to be very selfish. I don't like admitting that. It's caused me to be more concerned about my image, my reputation, my resume than people. And so what would it look like? What would it look like, Patrick, for you to actually start leading by faith rather than fear? And so that's where I'm at. And, and God has been patient with me. Many of you have been uh, patient with me as well. But you know what? The story of our lives sometimes is determined by how we respond to what we fear most. The story of our lives is sometimes determined by how we respond to what we fear most. The Lord kept Moses and the entire generation of of Israelites from entering into the promised land. And in some ways, that's how our stories go. How will you respond to to what you fear most? And so this generation of Jews, they died in the the desert. They died without having entered the promised land, the land that uh, promised this better life that God had before them. But that's not what God wanted for them. In fact, he, he allowed Caleb and Joshua's story to end a better way. And so here's what we read in Joshua chapter 11. It goes like this. And so Joshua took the entire land just as the Lord directed Moses. Do you like that shot at Moses there? Like he lacked faith. He, it should have been him to do it. And he gave it as an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal divisions. Then the land had rest from the war. Caleb and Joshua had fears. One of the most common things God told them repeatedly over and over again is, do not be afraid. Have courage. God is with you. Keep going. Even when it seems like it's impossible, God is going to move through you. And they learned that the best way to address the fear in life is to increase their fear of God. See, the promised land is before all of us. It's this better life that God has in mind for us if 
if we choose to align our, our lives with what God says is right, true, pure, and, and, and best for us, it requires us that, that we listen to him. It's possible for us to experience this promised land here and now, even though life feels like a desert. And so let's bring this home, okay? What if you are the closest that your neighbors ever get to the promised land? What if you are the closest that, that your neighbors will ever get to the promised land? Here's what I want you to do. I want you to do one thing this week, one thing this week that shows and demonstrates to your neighbors the promised land, the kind of love and the kind of life that God has in mind for them. How can you combat your fears by taking action and living out of faith rather than what you're afraid of? Do one thing this week. I don't know what this looks like, but I'm pretty confident that you probably have an idea. I'm going to pray here in a minute. Before I do that, I'm going to ask Dustin Kranz to come on up here uh, on stage. Uh, Dustin has uh, been on our staff for about uh, nine years and uh, started out as an intern and was our high school pastor uh, for a little while. Most recently, uh, Dustin was our college pastor, and uh, our church is better off because of how Dustin has led and served here at Crossroads for almost a decade or so. About a month ago, City Church in downtown Evansville approached Dustin and his wife Hillary about Dustin coming on board on staff to be the teaching pastor there, and Dustin has accepted that call, and you need to know that this is a very good thing, that this is a win for the kingdom. Although it's bittersweet for us, it is bitter, but this is a win for the kingdom, and this is a good thing. And so this is Dustin's last week and officially with us, okay? And so... As I pray, we're, we're going to pray for Dustin and his family, and this is just our way of saying this is a good thing, and you go with, with our blessing, all right? Let's, yeah, let's give them a hand. <clears throat> all right, let's pray. God, I know it's one thing to talk about stepping into the unknown, and believing that you are the God of tomorrow, but it's another when we actually see a couple, a family that we love doing that because Dustin and Hillary have been here for a long time, especially Hillary. I mean, she raised in this church and yet change is never easy. It's hard. It's, there's, you know, what, what if? And what if this happens? And, and there's a risk attached to it. And yet, Lord, we know that this is, this is of you. And in our city, our community, the church is going to be better uh, because of this move. And so, Lord Jesus, we ask that, that you would be with the Crances during this time of transition, that you would sustain them during this time. We are excited for City Church. We love City Church, and, and they are doing incredible things for you. And so, Lord Jesus, would you continue using uh, City Church, Jeff and their staff there, to uh, taking this message of hope and reconciliation to a world that really needs it. God, we've all got fears, and would you just remind us that whatever it is that we're scared of, what we're worried about, what we're anxious about, that you're with us, that you are much bigger than our problems, you are much bigger than some of the assumptions that we've made, and, and Lord Jesus, you are worth the risk, and so would you help us to actually do, do this and for it to not just be something that we hear and listen to. We love you, and it's in Christ's name we pray, amen. We give Dustin and the Kranz one more round of applause. Awesome. I'm going now.
wanted to let you know that on your way out today, you can see the Krantz family. They will be out there in the atrium. If for any reason today you need prayer or someone to talk with, we invite you just to remain seated as we dismiss in just a moment. And uh, one of our section hosts, the, the people with the red lanyards on, will be by to talk with you or pray with you, whatever you need. Again, for all of our first-time guests, thank you so much for being here. We invite you to join us at our Welcome Center right across our atrium. And uh, make sure that you check out our Neighbors and Nations Expo out there as well. Thank you so much for being here, guys. We will see you back next week. Have a good one.